1: Last year, this president fired, what, 59 tomahawks into Syria. And what happened? Here we are again. I'm
2: Mehdi Hassan. Welcome to Deconstructed, where we try and get behind the headlines, beyond the spin and outside the bubble of the conventional media wisdom. This week, Syria. A war seemingly without end. Seven long years of bloodshed, terror foreign interventions and perhaps most horrifically of all, the repeated use of chemical weapons to kill women and children. The latest such incident in Douma has prompted President Donald Trump to threaten his second aerial attack against the Assad regime since coming to office in January 2017. But on what authority and with what plan? I'll speak to Congresswoman Barbara Lee, one of the most principled and consistent voices against U.S. military interventions on Capitol
1: Hill, and the only member of Congress to vote against the invasion of Afghanistan back in 2001. The president needs to come to Congress. If he's going to use force in Syria, he needs to come to Congress for an authorization. We need to debate the costs and consequences and make some decisions as to whether or not we will authorize the use of force. Forget Russia Gate. Is this the real constitutional crisis? And how close are we to kicking
2: off World War II in the Middle
3: East?
2: I'm no pacifist. My view is that war is always evil, but sometimes a necessary evil, but only. Only when it's an absolute last resort, when there are no other options, when there's no alternative, and when it's legal, when it's proportionate, and when it has a reasonable chance of success. Those are the criteria that I'd apply when judging a bombing campaign or a new war. Those are the criteria that countless scholars, philosophers, theologians, jurists through the ages have used to determine whether a war is just or not. And yet almost none of those criteria have been met in Syria, where Donald Trump is on the verge of launching a new bombing campaign against the Bashar al-Assad regime, alongside France, the UK, and the freedom-loving kingdom of Saudi Arabia. My own position on Syria and on military action in Syria is a pretty straightforward one. Bashar al-Assad is a monster. He is. He's a monster. But US military intervention does nothing to stop him being a monster. And like so many interventions before it, will only make things worse. And look, it's completely fine to hold both of those views in your head at the same time. There is no contradiction between them. The fact that you don't support bombing Syria doesn't make you an Assad supporter or stooge, nor does the fact that you recognise Assad is the biggest monster in Syria, responsible for the most deaths and the most refugees. Recognising that fact doesn't automatically mean that you must support US air raids against his regime. There is no automatic connection between those two beliefs. Look, this isn't about whether Assad used chemical weapons or not. Let's assume he did. A study co-authored by the UN last year concluded that his forces were behind the Sarin attack in rebel-held Khan Sheikhoun. So let's assume it was him last weekend in Douma too. And yet the reality is that even if Assad was the one who used chemical weapons, there is no evidence that dropping bombs on Syria now will stop him from doing it again, will protect Syrians from future such attacks. Think about it. Just a year ago, Trump fired off 59 Tomahawk missiles at a Syrian military airbase in response to the Khan Sheikhoun Sarin attack. And he and his people and their media cheerleaders were so pleased with themselves after they did it.
4: With airstrikes in Syria, President Trump, he showed you, the American people and the entire world, the difference between leading from behind and leading from out front. This military action demonstrates the United States will not passively stand by while Assad blithely ignores international law. And employs chemical weapons.
3: What you've seen in the last 48 hours is President Trump being more decisive than Obama was in the last eight years.
4: We now have decisiveness and leadership. Timidity has been replaced by bold action.
2: And yet, almost exactly a year later, Assad is accused of gassing his own people again. A fat lot of good that last missile attack did. To quote from a tweet this week by Emma Ashford, a foreign policy analyst at the Libertarian Cato Institute in Washington, D.C., quote, for those who want a military response, the question is simple. Can you tell me any practical response short of full-fledged invasion that could prevent this? She's right. Just dropping a few bombs doesn't change the equation from Assad's point of view. For him, it's all or nothing, though it might make us feel better about ourselves. And yet here in D.C., voices like Emma Ashford's are pretty rare. The consensus view is that military action is the right thing to do, the necessary thing to do, the only thing to do when confronted with monsters like Assad, when dealing with massacres abroad. And it works, apparently. Here in Washington, there's no problem which can't be fixed by a good old airstrike. There's no crisis which can't be resolved by a big shiny bomb. There's no situation which can't be improved by a generous application of high explosive.
3: I think uh, Donald Trump became president of the United States. I think this was actually a big moment. We see these beautiful pictures at night. I am tempted to quote the great Leonard Cohen. I'm guided by the beauty of our weapons.
2: That was Fareed Zakaria and Brian Williams, respectively, embarrassing themselves a year ago and, more importantly, reminding Trump that the media may not like most of what he does on a daily basis at home, but they sure like it when he acts presidential and throws missiles at a faraway country about which he knows little. By the way, a lot of the media coverage also suggests that Trump gets worked up about chemical weapons because he sees pictures of kids choking on gas on his Twitter timeline. Which is complete and utter horseshit. The idea that Trump gives a damn about Syrians is perhaps the most offensive and ridiculous idea of all. This is a man who bans Syrian refugees, including children, from coming to the US. That's how much he cares about them. Trump and his people are constantly comparing refugees to animals. Oh, shut up, silly woman, said the reptile with a grin. You knew damn well I was a snake before
3: you took me in.
2: That's the president quoting Al Wilson's song, The Snake, a charming metaphor for the refugee crisis. And here's his housing secretary, Ben Carson, pulling a similar rhetorical stunt, comparing Syrian refugees to rabid dogs.
1: If there's a rabid dog running around your neighborhood, probably not going to assume something good about that dog. We have to have in place screening mechanisms that allow us to determine who. The mad dogs are, quite
2: frankly. So if you're gassed by Assad, Trump will bomb Assad on your behalf, but he won't let you flee that gas and come and take refuge here in the US. No, he'd rather you stay there and die. To call the president of the United States of America a hypocrite is really an insult to hypocrites. And look, this is about Trump. It is. You can't get away from Trump. There are a lot of liberals who say Trump is deranged, unhinged, corrupt, unqualified, ignorant, erratic. And yet they also trust him to launch a war against Assad and maybe Russia, too. I mean, you can't say one day that Trump is a madman who should be removed from office via impeachment or the 25th Amendment. And the next day say you're okay with him prosecuting what could, God forbid, turn into World War Three in the Middle East. It makes no sense. And then there are the Trump supporters who have to ask themselves how they're okay with a president who campaigned on the basis of Middle East wars being bad for America, who went on and on about how he opposed the Iraq war. He didn't, by the way, that's a lie. But he claimed to oppose Iraq and the many military misadventures in the Middle East under George W. Bush and Barack Obama.
3: Obviously, the war in Iraq was a big, fat mistake.
2: All right. So how can those Trump supporters now be okay with their hero as president? launching yet another Middle East war, another potential regime change mission in that already unstable region. People say, well, it's not the same thing. Syria isn't Iraq. Stop bringing up Iraq. This is about punishing chemical weapons use. This is not about regime change, they say. Maybe. But that's what they told us about Libya too, that we're only protecting the people of Benghazi. We're not out to topple Colonel Gaddafi. And look what that turned into. Look how that worked out. And also, there is one crucial way in which Syria is very much like Iraq, which is the legal angle. We were told that Saddam was violating UN resolutions by building WMDs. And so in order to supposedly enforce those UN resolutions, we violated the UN Charter in what the then UN Secretary General Kofi Annan called an illegal war.
0: It's not in conformity with the UN Charter from our point of view from the Charter point of view, it was illegal.
2: In Syria... We're now being told that we have to strike Assad for using chemical weapons, which is a massive violation of international law, the undermining of a key international norm. But in order to uphold international law on chemical weapons, we have to violate international law, which bans the use of force without either an imminent threat to your country or without a UN Security Council resolution. Last time I checked, neither of those things applied in Syria. Syria is not a threat to the United States of America, and there is no UN resolution approving a Trump airstrike. By the way, it's interesting that Tony Blair, the former British Prime Minister, emerged this week from whatever shiny rock he lives under these days to call for current Prime Minister Theresa May to take military action in Syria alongside Trump and to ignore the British Parliament, just to do it without a parliamentary vote. US neoconservatives and other hawks have made similar noises here. So it's all very well saying stop talking about Iraq, Syria is different, when the architects of the Iraq war keep popping up and making the case for action in Syria. Look, this is not just about international law. This is about domestic law, US law, the US Constitution. After all, what authority does Donald Trump have to launch a new war in Syria against the Assad regime? Remember, Article 1, Section 8, Clause 11 of the US Constitution grants Congress the power to declare war. So why does the president seem to think he has authority here? Why is Congress willing so passively to grant him that authority? Well, that takes us back to a little something called the AUMF. See, the United States is already bombing Syria is bombing ISIS in Syria and has been for years. Let's be clear about that. It's killed hundreds of Syrian civilians there already. And it does so under the AUMF, the Authorization for the Use of Military Force, passed by Congress in September 2001 after 9-11, which itself is a pretty tenuous justification for bombing ISIS in Syria, given ISIS uh, didn't exist in 2001 and had nothing to do with 9-11. But while you can at least make a flimsy case for bombing the jihadists of ISIS with the 2001 AUMF, which both the Obama and Trump administrations often do, you can't make any case for bombing the Assad government with that AUMF. Assad had nothing to do with 9-11. Remember, Trump himself tweeted in 2013 when President Obama was considering bombing Assad over chemical weapons use then. Quote, The president must get congressional approval before attacking Syria. Big mistake if he does not. There really is a Trump tweet, by the way, for every occasion. So Trump attacking Syria will be illegal. It could even be an impeachable offence. Add it to the long list of impeachable offences he may already have committed. But what's Congress going to do about it? Is there anyone in Congress willing to stand up to him in this manner? My guest today is Democratic Congresswoman Barbara Lee from California, chair of the Peace and Security Committee of the House Progressive Caucus, one of the leading figures in the U.S. anti-war movement and the only member of either chamber of Congress to vote against that AUMF, that Authorization of the use of force following the 9-11 attacks. She was the only member to vote against the invasion and occupation of Afghanistan. And given the mess Afghanistan is in today, 17 years later, with the Taliban undefeated, with no end in sight, I think she stands pretty vindicated on that. Congresswoman Barbara Lee, thank you so much for joining me on Deconstructed. We're here in the capital with all the associated background noises. Let me start by asking you this. Donald Trump wants to fire missiles. He's bragging about it on Twitter at the Syrian regime of Bashar al-Assad. Do you support airstrikes as a response to this alleged chemical weapons attack in Syria?
1: So I don't support th- what this president is is doing. You don't put people in jeopardy
0: or you
1: announcing that you're possibly going to use force and go to war uh, via Twitter. That's just uh, wrong. Uh, Secondly, the president needs to come to Congress. If he's going to use force in Syria, he needs to come to Congress for an authorization. We need to debate the costs and consequences and make some decisions as to whether or not we will authorize the use of force. The Constitution requires Congress to do that. Congress has been missing in action. Thirdly, uh, when you look at the horrific attacks against civilians, we're not going to just turn our head and say this is going to go away. We need a, a full international response to bring those who have perpetrated these horrific crimes to justice. A lot of supporters of
2: airstrikes would say, well, how do you bring them to justice without military force, without the credible threat of force, if not actual attacks on Syrian military positions?
1: Last year, this president uh, fired, what, 59 tomahawks into Syria. And what happened? Here we are again. The use of force and bombing will not bring Assad and the perpetrators of this horrific crime to justice. We have to have an international response, and it has to be based on diplomacy and a political strategy. Uh,
2: Just to be clear, are you saying that Donald Trump as commander in chief does not have the legal authority to launch airstrikes against Assad without congressional approval?
1: Only Congress has the authority to declare war. The president has to come to Congress based on our constitution to authorize the use of force. But this president, just like um, President Obama and President Bush used the 2001 resolution the authorization to use force, us, which I voted against because I knew it was a blank check. You were the
2: only person to vote against it, I believe. Yeah,
1: I was the only person to vote against this blank check. It was a 60 word resolution authorization. That has been used over 41 times according to, to the Congressional Research Service. Going back to 2001, that was a, a vote
2: that led to Afghanistan. Afghanistan led to Iraq black sites, Guantanamo Bay, the whole war Drone on terror. Attacks, Drone attacks, Yemen, Guantanamo. Indeed, which Obama inherited and, and escalated in some ways. So my question to you is back in 2001, what was that atmosphere like when you were the one dissenting voice on that? Because in many ways, you've been vindicated on that vote. You look at the Afghanistan mess today. 17 years later, it's not exactly a success story. What was it like at the time being in this building and saying, you know what, I'm not up for war straight away as a response to nine eleven?
1: Well, first, I think that uh, being in this building was a very uh, I'm glad I was in this building first of all. secondly, it was a terrible time. It was we had lost over three thousand individuals, you know, people in uh, New York here. I was in the capitol when the Pentagon was bombed had to evacuate mm. when the airplane crashed in the Pentagon. So it was a very scary time. My uh, chief of staff then uh, lost his uh, cousin on flight ninety three mm which was they say was coming into the Capitol and I was sitting in the Capitol at 8.30 that morning and so the fear and the anger and the despair was very prevalent just like it was throughout the country because of that though I believe the members of Congress should have been more rational because we're elected especially in times of national security crisis to be the thoughtful leaders rather than go with the flow and so when I voted no and I had spoke for a minute or two on the floor and, and said, I thought this was going to spiral out of control. It was a blank check. It was overly broad. And we shouldn't be doing this three days after the horrific mm. attacks. There was no way I could vote for that. And uh, of and course, still being
2: used today to justify attacks on ISIS in Syria when ISIS wasn't even in existence in
1: 2001. Yeah, yeah and I knew that then. And I think now when you look at where the public is, And where members of Congress come, it took 16 years, but I think people are ready. If Speaker Ryan and the leadership here would allow the repeal of that amendment, I think we would have that done. And we would have time to debate and come up with, if in fact we needed to come up with new authorizations, that could be done. But what I've seen in this administration especially, the three Ds that we uh, try to base our um, foreign policy and military policy pillars on, uh, diplomacy, development, and defense, Two of those Ds are gone. It's mm. defense only. When you look at John Bolton, I mean, this man wants to go to war everywhere in the world. Yeah. When you look at Pompeo. And his first day at work, because you know, Syria, I mean, it's, should we bomb Syria on his first day at work? Yeah. It's, what so a, this what a, what a is timing. dangerous. And I think that uh, sooner or later, the public is going to understand that the resources that are not going into uh, their community for schools and housing and infrastructure and jobs you know, are going to the Pentagon for this excessive budget that has nothing to do with national security, but more about uh, an agenda that's, that's the continuation of a war machine. Barbara Lee, thanks for joining me on Deconstructed. Okay, thank you. Thank you.
2: That was Democratic Congresswoman Barbara Lee. She represents the 13th District of California. So how much is the Barack Obama presidency to blame for the current situation in Syria? And did Barack Obama's attack on Libya without congressional approval allow Donald Trump today to attack Syria without congressional approval? I'm joined now by the former Obama Pentagon official, Elan Goldenberg, who's currently a senior fellow and Middle East security expert at the Center for New American Security here in Washington, D.C. Elon, thanks for coming on the show. Great to be here. You wrote a piece for foreign policy just a few days ago. You co-authored a piece with another former Obama official, Derek Chalet, which was headlined One Year Ago, Pundits Welcomed a Turning Point in Syria. They Were Wrong. Why do you think Trump has got his Syria policy wrong? Let's start there.
4: Sure. I mean, it's sort of why he has his policy wrong on everything in the Middle East, which is there really isn't a policy or a strategy. It's a combination of campaign promises uh, things that doing the opposite of what Obama did, uh, and then just gut feeling. So in the case of Syria in particular, we have two things happening at once. When we had the chemical weapon attack last year uh, and we had these missile strikes, there was celebration that, that Trump was going to be more muscular than Obama across the board. Now, on the one hand, I, I supported those strikes in that I thought it makes sense to try to at least deter the use of chemical weapons. But you got to have a plan for what you're going to do afterwards. Isn't the
2: problem here that while there is a case for military action, unless you're a pacifist, there is a case for military action in cases where chemical weapons are being used, people are being massacred. Can you really trust Donald Trump? To carry out military action in that way. Because I'm guessing, mm-hmm. Elon, you're somebody who criticizes him day in, day out right. in other walks of life. Yeah. You think he's kind of, I think it's fair, without without even knowing your views on his politics, I'm going to guess that you think he's a little bit corrupt. He's yep. quite dishonest. Mm-hmm. He might be a little bit unhinged. And yet, the same people who think that are willing to give him a little bit of a pass or the benefit of that on foreign affairs. How does that work?
4: It basically, it, it, people try to suspend disbelief, and I agree with you. They try to treat this administration—and I'm guilty of it sometimes myself. You can't help it—treat uh, this as though it's a normal administration just conducting normal fall-iron policy, and this is a normal president. And when he does something like a limited military strike to try to deter chemical weapons, that's a normal thing. But then you, you, know, you wake up in the morning, and you open up your Twitter, and you see the president uh, basically taunting the Russians and daring them to respond, and you're like, no, this is not normal. There
2: is this view in Washington, D.C. that the best response to a foreign crisis is to take military action. There are a lot of people in D.C., not just on the right, yeah. but even on the left, in the center, in the Democratic Party, who mm-hmm. think, you know, we should apply U.S. military power. There's a problem. Yeah. There's a dictator. There's a massacre. There's a, uh, you know, there's some. There's a problem that needs resolving. Send in the U.S. or Force. Send in the Marines. There is, you work in foreign policy yeah. here in Washington, D.C. There is that mentality, isn't there, across the city? Yeah.
4: There is an instinct to do that, especially when you're frustrated in a situation like Syria, where for so long we've done, we've just sort of felt helpless. Uh, I'm not opposed to military force necessarily, but I think the whole point of military force when you use it is to achieve a political outcome, right? That's what you're trying to do. You have to actually have a plan of what is this actually trying to achieve and can it meaningfully achieve that, and is it worth the cost, and is it worth the risk, and those are all the things you have to weigh. And I think as President Obama weighed all those things, uh, that's why he came to the conclusion of don't do it.
2: One war which Barack Obama did embark upon, which he later regretted in some ways, was the Libya intervention in 2011, Mm. which, again, began as a humanitarian intervention, protect the people of Benghazi, and ended Mm. up being regime change. Gaddafi kind of assaulted, sodomized and murdered in the desert by by rebel groups with, with U.S. air support. So... Trump, when he bombed Syria last year, the Trump administration offered Libya as their legal get out. They said, well, Obama did Libya. We can do this because the AUMF, the authorization for the use of military force after 9-11, does not apply here to Assad. Assad had nothing to do with 9-11. You can't justify. How legally do you think Trump can justify this? And if he does point to Libya, isn't Obama guilty of the same law-breaking as Trump when it comes to foreign military intervention?
4: So I will say this. I think both these presidents in some ways have have really pushed the envelope in terms of authorization for use of military force. But the default lies with them, but it also lies with Congress, because Congress is very happy to clap about military intervention, just doesn't want to vote on it ever. So they'll all come out with public statements supporting the strikes. They all came out and supported the Libya intervention, or most of them did. They all, Most of them came out and supported Trump's interve- uh, missile strikes. But it's almost year. like they don't
2: want to exercise their own responsibility. Right, exactly.
4: What, what really should happen here well, is they should be- the members of Congress are cowards. Breaking I mean, news. Yeah, you know, they should be, and I spent some time actually in the Senate, uh, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, which is the committee that does this. There are members who want to push this. A guy like Tim Kaine, even Bob Corker, there are thoughtful senators who say, we need a new AUMF, we need to think about
2: this. And Barbara Lee in the House of Representatives, who I just spoke with.
4: Yeah, absolutely. We need to think about this, uh, and we need to, you know, the answer is not necessarily no military force, but the the, the answer is, let's actually have a new authorization for the use of military force that deals with some of these questions, uh, and actually exercise our prerogative as Congress. Because if you don't, you put, put these presidents in a situation where... You know, either you're taking military force off the table altogether or they just have to go off and do it on their own and they'll get political support afterwards. That Those those don't make sense.
2: You're a man who's worked on Middle East policy for many years, including inside the U.S. government, inside the Pentagon. Ha- tell our listeners how scared, how concerned, how worried should they be on a scale of one to ten when it comes to Trump in the Middle East?
4: Uh, I would probably say I'd probably put it at about an eight. I think there's things to be more scared about, actually, in some ways. In terms of North Korea, actually scares me. If I really wanted to be scared, I, if where I am at ten is actually uh, over in Northeast Asia, <laughs> and the possibility the oh, yeah, world gets.: with North an Korea, eight. yay, now, you Middle know. East only has an eight compared to North <laughs> Korea. But there is a scenario, you know, there's a scenario where uh, a year from now, his North Korea talks have gone nowhere. He's under potential threat of impeachment with a Democratic Congress. The economy slowing down because of his irresponsible economic policies. Uh, John Bolton is whispering in his ear. He's feeling encircled as the next president. Assad election is comes still on. killing
2: people in Syria.
4: Yeah. As- you know, Assad is still killing people in Syria. We're out of the Iran nuclear deal. And then the thing I worry about is less Syria and more does this become, does military action against Iran start to come on the table? That's, to me, I think the sort of scariest problem in the Middle East for the next few years if, if, if things really start to go off the rail with, with the current Trump policy.
2: Elon Goldberg, thanks for coming and giving us that bleak assessment. <laughs> Appreciate sure. it. Great to be here. That was Elon Goldenberg from the Center for a New American Security and a former Pentagon official under President Obama. And that's our show. Deconstructed as a production of First Look Media and The Intercept and is distributed by Panoply. Our producer is Zach Young. Lital Mollard is our executive producer. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. And Betsy Reid is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. I'm Mehdi Hassan. You can follow me on Twitter, at Mehdi R. If you haven't already, please do subscribe to the show so you can hear it every Friday. Go to theintercept.com forward slash deconstructed to subscribe from your podcast platform of choice. And if you're new to podcasts, we've got all the info there. Please do subscribe, whether you're on an iPhone or an Android or whatever. That means this podcast will automatically download to your device every time a new episode is available. You won't miss any, and you don't want to miss any now, do you? If you're subscribed already, thanks so much but please also go and leave us a rating or review. It helps other people find this show. Thanks, and see you next week.
0: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.